In this episode, we have Tim Jarvis, environmental scientist, adventurer, author, public speaker, and filmmaker. Let's get into it right now. Welcome to the Alice Smith Part on Purpose podcast, where we engage in courageous conversations with thought leaders in education and explore the intentional impact our alumni are having in the wider world. Tim, welcome to this episode of the podcast. How are you doing today? Great to be here, Simon. Thanks for having me. Well, it's, it's great to have you here. I'm really looking forward to talking to you about your life and, and what you've been doing for the last few years. In fact, why don't we just dive straight into it? I wonder whether you can just tell me a little bit about yourself and your background in environmental science. Well, I'm confused as to where I'm really from. I was born in the UK. I lived there till I was seven and then moved to Malaysia where I went to Alice Smith uh, School and had a wonderful, wonderful time. Um, great education there. And it really was a formative experience, the whole thing. I was there till I was uh, 12, and then I went to United World College in Singapore, uh, then back to the UK to university, travelled extensively, and then moved to Australia at the age of 27, and have been here ever since, and sort of flipped backwards and forwards between the UK and uh, and Australia, um, emitting carbon as I go, but spending most of my time talking about the importance of not doing so as an environmental scientist. Uh, and my main areas of interest really relate to climate change and the loss of biodiversity and what we can do about those things. I see. So what was it that took you from the UK to Malaysia in the first place then? Well, my father's work essentially was what took us there. He uh, he worked for a company called Scott & English. He's a chartered accountant, which we always rib him about. But um, uh, reality is he went out to, to be the f- sort of financial controller, if you like, of a company that distributed Tiger Balm throughout at the Asia-Pacific region okay. and that took us to Kale and then Singapore. Right, I see, I see. So then how did you get into environmental science and exploration and all of those wonderful things? Well, the two for me have always been connected. I mean, I think I think it comes from a love of the outdoors and that was something that was fostered in me both through my time at Alice Smith and then, uh, and then United World College after that, which was a Kurt Hahn school and all about, you know, outdoor leadership. But I think it started really with with Alice Smith. And it started with my time in KL as a small child. You know, I was out there, you know, climbing trees and there were there were troops of monkeys in the outskirts of KL back in those days and wild dogs and Gosh. tin mining dredges to, to climb and things like that. And I think I discovered myself out there. I think I uh, had some wonderful formative life experiences as a young kid, but also was very conscious of the extent to which Malaysia had, you know, endless oil palm and endless rubber plantations. And I remember thinking as a 10 or 11 year old, you know, where's, where's the space for nature in all this? And, and do really clearly remember having that thought bubble pop into my head. And uh, I, I guess it's remained with me ever since. Tim, in a moment, I'm going to ask you what your why is for what it is that you do. But for people who are listening, who maybe don't know who you are, and, and they don't know the detail about what you do, just just tell us in a snapshot about 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 what you've been doing since you arrived in Australia and your travels around the world. Well, my, my, my world is divided really in two. I see them as being seamlessly joined together. One is in, as an environmental scientist, I sort of lobby for environmental protection of oceans and land and actively involved in the climate change space. Uh, but the other side is, is as an explorer of some of the world's most remote places. I spend a lot of my time in the Arctic and even more time in the Antarctic, which I think for most people are kind of the litmus paper for issues like climate change. Melting ice is probably the thing that people will tell you in their minds represents a visual manifestation of climate change. And so I've seen it up close and personal on my 13 trips to to the Antarctic as an explorer and adventurer of those places. And it's uh, it's kind of confronting, even though you've got the beauty of Antarctica, you've still got the 
the, the fact that you're seeing the ice melting all around you. And tell me a little bit about about that climate change and, and why that's so important to you. And and, I, and I'm wondering as well that that sometimes you, there, there are people who, well, in days gone by, people used to try to deny climate change. I, I think there are fewer of those people around now. But but there are some other people who tend to be a little bit outspoken, who tend to feel that climate change is a thing, but that we should just adapt to it instead of adapting our lives to prevent it from happening or prevent it from getting any worse. That's right. I mean, I think, you know, in the UK, they have these castles called Norman castles, as you know, and uh, they, can sit, they, they consist of a sort of an outer wall. And then inside that is another another inner wall should the outer wall be breached and another another wall with inside that and then a keep which is the sort of the the tower in the middle that everybody retreats to if all the other walls have been breached and i tend to think of climate change denial as being something where we breach the outer wall and that's no longer really an issue in most people's minds i think most people can see it's happening the second wall we have to breach is to what extent are we responsible for it and and to what extent is it sort of natural if you like in inverted commas once we breach that wall, and in many people's minds, we've already started to do that, and I think most people accept it's sort of down to us, then it's to what extent am I responsible for the solution to it? And that's a more difficult wall to try and 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 breach. But I think, I think you know, over time, we, we're getting there, but just not quickly enough. So tell me then about some of the more memorable expeditions that you've led. Well, look, I think the one that springs... To mind, well, look, I, th- I think getting to the South Pole in 1999 was a big deal for me. I-, I trekked from the edge of the continent proper for where the ocean meets the the ice of Antarctica, and that really is a long, wow. long way out. It's a lot further out than any kind of you know more commercial trips would 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 use as a route. It's a, it's a lot further out. Give me an idea on that. I mean, I- I've got no idea how long it would take to get from the edge to the South Pole. It took me 47 days, which was the record at the time. Not that I'm sort of, you know, name dropping records or anything, but Gosh. in terms of no one had done it faster. There were no rest days. It was a, it was a pretty, um, it was a pretty tough endeavor. I have to admit, I mean, I was at the peak of physical fitness. I, I didn't really make too many mistakes. Um, the equipment held up. I had no rest days. I traveled regardless of whether we had blizzards or good weather or whether I fell in crevasses or whatever mm-hmm. befell me, I kept going and I moved as fast as I as I possibly could mm. and got there in 47 days. And I think, you know, finding the pole, because my GPS had given up the ghost about two weeks prior, oh, um, wow. really relied on going back to basic principles of, you know, the, the, the ground-based terrain you get this windblown ice called sastrugi and it and it orientates in a particular direction based on the prevailing wind and you get really quite used to the angle at which you cross that stuff with your skis and so you could you could pretty much orientate your skis to the to 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 the these striations on the ground and 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 keep pretty much on the right bearing and then of course i had a chest compass and i just had to use those two things plus you know the occasional sun sight and use that to work out my position to reach the South Pole uh, 500 Gosh. kilometers later. And, and it was quite a relief, I can tell you, when I, when I saw the buildings of South Pole. And the other one that comes to mind is, uh, of course, Ernest Shackleton's journey that I replicated uh, 10 years ago now, which involved rebuilding the Great Explorer's small uh, 6.7 meter long keelless rowing boat and using that to, to, to cross the ocean from Antarctica to the sub-Antarctic island of South Georgia and then climbing across it. And that was, uh, that was quite something. I'll bet, I'll bet it was. Um, quick side question. What do you think Shackleton would say if he came back today and looked at the world and what we're doing to it? Well, I mean, there are probably words that you wouldn't use uh, now that, that, that might immediately spring to mind. But 
he said, you, you know, um, he said, you know, problems are just things to overcome after all. And, you know, he, you know, he, he was, he was very philosophical about things, but he was also a very outcome focused uh, individual. I call him a pragmatic optimist. You know, he was someone who, when their ship sank, as was the case on his early expedition and things were looking bad, he didn't panic, but equally he wasn't blindly optimistic about prospects. He said, you know, things are very serious. However, here is what I think we need to do to save ourselves from the situation we now find ourselves in. And he started to plan his way out of it in a way that his team could could get behind. They had confidence in the fact that he could maybe deliver salvation, in their case, saving themselves. And I think we need to take a leaf out of his book and apply the same kind of pragmatic optimism to issues like climate change. That's what some of the greats say, though, isn't it? That you should see things for how they really are, not worse than they are, not better than they are, but just seeing things for actually how they are. And that helps you take the first step in working that, what, working the best route out of that problem, whatever that problem is. That's right. And I think, you know, you break down the enormity into into, into small pieces, you, you, you celebrate success along the way. And you look, I think a key tenet of successful expeditioning is you don't allow things beyond your control to, to weigh too heavily on you. You control what you can. You break down the total into small pieces. You celebrate the success along the way. And you remain focused on what it is that you're there to try and achieve. And uh, I think, again, with climate, there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's a real message there, whether you're a country or a city or a, a school or an individual or a city, you know, it's up to each of us to to decide what bit of this thing we're going to try and solve ourselves and and get on with the business of doing it. Tim, why do you do all of this? Well, look, I mean, I've I've I, I spent you know right back from childhood, spending a lot of time on my own in the wilds, developed a real sort of sense of self and a sense of being comfortable in my own skin. I think and and feeling without sounding corny about it you know it felt like I really developed something of a relationship with this place you know and I feel that I have a kind of responsibility to to do something about its decline you know if if that if that's relates to me going to remote places and then bringing back messages and 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 showing people the way things are and and using some of the expedition lessons I've learned to try and affect positive change then then great but I feel sort of duty bound to do it really because I've had some wonderful experiences on this mortal coil and I'm I'm determined to leave it better than I found it. Sometimes you come across people who seem to have not a care in the world for climate, for the environment, for for the, for the planet that's hosting us right now. Um, and, and it seems to me that there are increasing numbers of these people who seem to be more fixated on the, the most trivial things in life. How do we get this message that you're trying to communicate out to the masses? It's true. You know, I mean, I wish there were times when I can actually take my foot off the gas and sort of think, okay, let's just try and live in the moment a little bit more. Sadly, this is something I don't find I do too much these days. I, I tend to be, you know, really pretty focused on what it is I think I have a response, responsibility to try and to try and do. I think the answer to your question, again, you know, not 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 going back to the Shackleton well once too often, but probably a key aspect of his leadership was was his emotional intelligence, understanding that if you want to get a group of people pulling as one to, in their case, save themselves, but it doesn't matter what the ultimate goal is, uh, in our case, perhaps saving ourselves, you've got to understand that everybody's motivated by different things. You've got to find language and metrics that resonate with the person whose behavior you seek to change. And you can't you can't be blaming people. You've got to go in and say, now look, here, here's an opportunity we've we we find ourselves with, you know, we're presented with. You, you know, people would often say, 
you know, how, how, how would you approach Donald Trump and get him to do something about climate change? I certainly wouldn't go in with the angle of using a moral argument, saving, saving the planet for future generations. As much as that motivates me, I would perhaps go in with the angle of the fact that, you know, I've got an opportunity for him. It will improve America's energy security. It'll improve their position or retain their position uh, in the ascendancy of the world order. And it's called renewable energy in which 1.2 million people work versus sub 50,000 that work in coal. You know, which one do you want to back based on the pure economics of the situation and find a way in that way? I think we've we've used guilt and fear-based messaging for too long to try and affect change in this in this environment space. And in some people, that turns them off and they, they feel that, you know, it's either too late or they're not willing to take responsibility for their bit or they feel that you're you're blaming them. And it's not a good basis on which to start a conversation about where to from here. So how important do you feel it is to have the ability to communicate in the right way to different people regarding things like sustainability and climate change? I think it's the critical thing. I really do. I mean, I think, uh, you know, I used to be the patron of an organisation called Nature Play. It was all about getting kids outdoors. And all the stats tell us that children now spend less time outdoors than a high security penitentiary prisoner for example. Oh, gosh, um, really? <laughs> yeah, you know, two, less than two hours a day, which is what, you know, high security prisoners spend. And, you know, you, you can you can spend a lot of time sort of thinking about what might appeal to the children. The reality is you've got to get the parents convinced. And so you've got to arm yourself with all of the benefits to the children developmentally in terms of health, mental and physical health. And, and you know, what will help them become a more balanced individual, allow them to achieve their full potential. And you've got to arm yourself with the sort of stats around that to get to get that outcome achieved, to get the next generation spending more time in nature. But it's about pitching it to parents. Uh, I run a reforestation project surrounded by farmers who perhaps don't necessarily share my vision of, of restoring native forest to, to, to the land that I'm on that used to be under, under the plough. You've got to find some co-benefits for those farmers associated with nature in and around the their properties. You've got to you've got to talk to them about how how you know vegetation corridors or windbreaks as they like to call them improve the quality of of crops on their land by retaining more moisture, by slowing the wind speed down, by reducing the number of deaths they experience through the cold for their cattle and their sheep. And you've got to find language and 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 find means by which you can reach common ground with these people to, to try and affect change. So tell me more then about the impact of climate change that you've been able to witness yourself, maybe going to some of the places that you visited already. Well, I mean, sadly, with climate change, I mean, one of the problems about communicating it up until, I'd say, the last decade in particular, was the fact that you it's so intangible. You know, the 417 parts per million of CO2, as was, was always a very difficult thing to communicate. Now it's more like 420 parts per million. You can't see it. It's very, very difficult to make it real to people unless you have proxies that, that are that are more tangible. Uh, sadly, here in Australia, we have drought, we have fires. We're just entering now into the into the sort of bushfire season, the summer. As traumatic and as terrible as those events are, they do nevertheless at least represent a tangible way of of, of showing what climate change will look like in in the Australian context. They make it they make it real for people as. As much as I would not wish that upon anybody, uh, the reality is they do make it real in many people's minds. In Antarctica, melting ice is 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 a very tangible way of showing the issue. Um, in retracing Shackleton's journey, you know, you leave Antarctica. The scale of the place, of course, is vast. 
It's, uh, you know, it's 58 times the size of the UK. It's about twice the size of Australia, three times the size of India. You know, it's a massive, massive wow. <laughs> place with an average ice thickness of 2,050 metres average. So it's the staggering Gosh. 30 million cubic kilometres of ice in the Antarctic uh, wow. uh, ice cap. Um, 20,000 times the size of Singapore, by the way, with this average 2,050 metres thickness of ice. But I think, you know, so it's difficult to see it even there, but on a place like South Georgia, which is a sub-Antarctic island with glaciers all over the place, very, very easy to see because those glaciers are, are, are based in valleys and they're very discrete rivers of ice. And when they retreat, you can see them really clearly retreating back up that valley uh, to mm. the extent that Shackleton had to cross three of these glaciers on his traverse of the island. We only had to cross two. The third one for us was a lake. So it's very clear to see. And what role do you see education providers, people like Alice Smith or schools like Alice Smith, um, having when it comes to raising awareness amongst children in particular about climate change and sustainability issues? Well, I think there's a whole range of different ways that it can be done. I mean, I think from a, from a sort of curriculum point of view, obviously you've got to have issues like this front and centre as to what's happening into the future. I think the way that schools used to deliver education in my day is that under the British system, you would do, uh, you know, you do O-levels or GCSEs at age 16 uh, and then A-levels uh, or IB at 18 and then go on to, you know, further education if that was for you. But a lot of the a lot of the way that education was delivered, certainly in my day, was very... Um, very silo based. I think we need more interconnectedness of subjects such that people can just see and learn how you deal with these interconnected sort of system based issues. So I think there needs to be a bit of a rethink as to the way that we deliver education to ensure that our young people are going out into a world that understand how to think in systems terms. So I think that's a critical aspect of it. I think mm -hmm. schools actually being seen to be doing their bit and, and getting involved in local initiatives, uh, perhaps running things like nurseries to grow trees, uh, you know, initiatives really local to home that that that, that um, children can get involved with is also is also extremely important. Uh, having partnerships with schools in other countries so they can all share information as to how different people in different geographies are sort of trying to deal with the same sort of issues. I think is critical. So that there are so many elements of what schools can do to make this stuff uh, real. But I think we really need to frame any subject that gets taught now in terms of the interconnectedness of things. And it's more so than ever before. So it's really that kind of systems thinking I think we need to teach. And if someone's listening to this right now, someone who maybe is a, uh, a young individual, but they're thinking that later in their life, they might want to pursue a career in environmental science or, or exploration, what would you say to them? What what advice would you give to them? Well, I'd say, look, start starting with the uh, with exploration. It's not all been done. That's the first thing I would say. I think if someone said to me a while ago, and and look, I get given these 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 um, these titles, uh, you know, explorer or adventurer or filmmaker, and they're not bad titles to have. Let's face it, they're quite good fun. They're um, quite cool as well. Uh, they're quite cool. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll take that. I mean, they are. My father's an accountant, so we we had a bit of a laugh at his expense. But look, I don't mind what people call me really within reason. But I mean, I, I think exploration is not so much about finding a, a new thing, the source of a new river, or, or or a mountain that hasn't been climbed necessarily. It's about really the journey of seeing whether you are capable of doing it. I think it's as much a journey of self exploration as it is that literal journey. So I wouldn't allow 
a young person listening to feel that it all been it had all been done and therefore what's the point because i think it's about you going on your journey so you should you should give things a try the second thing i'd say is that there are is of course plenty that we haven't discovered i mean we really don't know about much of the world's oceans many of the world's mountains of course have not been climbed we certainly don't know uh, how many species we share the planet with so there's a, a lot of work going on there we don't know about the microbial world for example and all of these mycorrhizal networks that we're now realizing link trees together and allow them to communicate chemically, which is just a fascinating, fascinating area of research. We don't know the first thing about space in terms of what the dark matter is uh, or the dark energy is, which is 90 something percent of the known universe. So there's all sorts of stuff we really don't understand. So I still think exploration um, has its place. In terms of the environment, I mean, there's no shortage of opportunity there either. And I would urge young people to to get involved in that space because we need your energy, we need your commitment, uh, we need your intellect, your enthusiasm, your new ideas to help make meaningful progress in many different fields of endeavour in the environment space, whether it's renewable energy or planting trees or finding new ways of of, of making our economies more greener. I think we, we need your help and, and, and there's massive opportunity in that area. I love that. Totally love that. Um, Tim, before we end, I'd love to know a little bit about what you remember about your time at Alice Smith. Um, tell us about how old you were and, and what you do remember when you were there. Well, I went there at the age of uh, seven and, and I left when I was 12. And I remember all sorts of things very fondly. I remember uh, Cub Scouts. I remember the great friendships I had with people of all nationalities. That was the wonderful, wonderful thing. I remember the standard of education was exceptionally high. And I mean this with no disrespect to any other schools I went to, but I found that once I finished at Alice Smith, I was actually, I was actually way ahead uh, compared to the, the, you know, subsequent schools I went to. So the standards were also, also really high. Um, sense of community, um, you know, it was a wonderful, wonderful experience that period of my my life. Uh, I remember Joe Bugner and Muhammad Ali fighting at Medeca Stadium in 1975, a famous fight. And I remember Joe Bugner coming to see us as small children sitting on the floor, cross-legged. Oh, wow, really? Wearing Gosh. our shorts as we did. And uh, he said, um, uh, who wants Joe Bugner to win? And he was six foot five and 250 pounds or something. We all said, yes. And he said, who wants Muhammad Ali to win? And one boy said, yay. And he went <laughs> and physically picked him up with one hand. I'll never forget it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, you know, so there's just, just some wonderful, wonderful, a wonderful community there that really set me up, really set me up for, 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 for life generally. That's really good to hear. Tim, if anyone's listening to this and they wanted to keep in touch with you or they wanted to look you up online, where's the best place they should go? I would go to, you know, the website, probably uh, timjarvis.org um, is, is probably the first port of call. I am on various social media channels a little bit reluctantly. Uh, Tim Jarvis AM on Instagram and also on LinkedIn. I'm, I suspect a lot of young people won't be on LinkedIn, but that's where you can find me. So go to the website and, and do get in touch. And I'm always interested to hear hear from people and really encourage people to embark on their own journey in, in, in the environmental field. Well, we'll put those links in the in the show notes for this podcast episode. But in the meantime, Tim, it's been great talking to you. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you, Simon. So there we are. That brings us to the end of this episode. If you have any questions at all, then please do get in touch with the school. But in the meantime, thank you for listening to this and we'll see you next time. Bye for now.